Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. This is Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm Jim Hamblin, a doctor and staff writer at The Atlantic. And I am Maeve Higgins. I'm a comedian and a writer. Hi, Maeve. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm not too bad. Are you still in lockdown, Maeve? Still in lockdown. Um, You know, the anniversaries are kind of ticking by, aren't they? Like, the last thing I wrote was, you know, a year. It's been a year. And now it's been basically like a year and a month. Much less auspicious um, anniversaries. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, when people have children and they keep doing photos of them holding blocks and it's like 63 months old today <laughs> but um you're not cute anymore pandemic <laughs> you're walking around and you're biting people this needs to stop <laughs> <laughs> oh man the terrible twos i know it's tantruming big time <laughs> yeah no one likes it everyone wants it to be over uh and yet um Things are quite bad in Europe, and and you're quite in lockdown, and things are, as we discussed last week, in limbo here. Are yeah? How are you feeling? Are you are you surviving mentally? Surviving mentally. I mean, I definitely think like talking to people about it helps. And I was writing about like the small things we miss, which on this show we talk about like you know the worst aspects of the pandemic <laughs> and how dangerous it is, and that's so important. Um, But I was also wondering, like, the small things people missed. And uh, one girl on Instagram said to me that, like, she and her sister used to go into stores just browsing. And the way they'd signal they were finished shopping was they'd say, like, okay, I've touched everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you just go into a store and just touch things for kicks? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I realized I miss that too, because, you, yeah. you know, it's not like you don't go in and like spend tons of money. You just kind of go in and, oh, look at that. Pick up a lamp, like, I don't know why, to see how much it weighs and <laughs> put it back down again. Just tiny, uh-huh. fun. Someone else said they really, <laughs> they really miss um, the smell of movie theaters. And I thought that was huh. interesting. Well, mm. that's an attainable smell. Some mix of buttered popcorn and cleaning Cleaning fluids, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that... (laughs) But But, listen, Jim, I guess we should talk about the main thing that we wanted to talk through in today's show, which is mm -hmm. after the shootings in Georgia, which were before the latest shootings in Colorado, but we're talking about the shootings in Georgia where the workplaces of Asian women were targeted and attacked and eight people were killed we want to underline this surge in anti-Asian harassment and violence during the pandemic. Yeah. We haven't talked a lot about this Mm. and it seems like it, there are these sort of culminating horrific events that bring these things into the news, but it's been going on this rise in anti-Asian discrimination since the beginning of the pandemic and explicitly stoked by president Trump Hate crimes are up 150% in 2020. Mm. There were 3,800 anti-Asian incidents in the last year. Jeez, yeah. So there's a constant theme in the pandemic of us getting used to 
unacceptable things that are going on at low levels. You know, a lot of people are a lot of people are dying. A lot of people are suffering economically. Uh, a lot of people have food insecurity, etc. There's a lot of anti-Asian discrimination, and that is not acceptable. But it's been just part of the overall problem. And yeah, it seems to have come to a, a head where there's <laughs> it's finally getting more attention. Now. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, like President Trump was trying to basically blame the coronavirus on China and, you know, calling it the China virus very deliberately. Yeah. You know, that's been going on now for for over a year. And I don't know what we would say about it on this show, what I would even say about it, because I mm-hmm. presume everyone listening to this knows that's an absurd thing to say. It is racist and xenophobic and leads to just unnecessary division that can culminate in violence. Like, it's so painfully obvious. It's like there's we shouldn't even need to discuss why that's wrong. Everyone already knows. Yeah. Um. So, I, yeah, I've been struggling with just how, you know, to contribute to... The conversation. Uh, I mean... Yeah, it's like... Well, because because now things are so... have reached such a height, right? And I know that, like... Something that you have researched and that you have written about before is about how pandemics, disease in general, has often been deployed to other people, right? Like in the language used around it, the kind of blame and the the vocabulary, you know, yeah. around like dirt, who's dirty or who's clean. Uh, you've yeah. certainly given that some thought. I have. I think mm-hmm. infectious disease and... and racism and xenophobia their histories are intertwined and sometimes people in power when they're trying to you know consolidate uh nationalistic sentiment Mm -hmm. um do so by othering groups and they need a Mm -hmm. reason to do that sometimes they still say things like like they'll bring disease into our country they're dirty Mm -hmm. even when the fear is not at all legitimate um that is something that has always gone on. You know, as you said, like us, the listeners, wouldn't consciously be going around equating these things, but we don't live in a bubble. We live in like (laughs) the forces of history are acting on us all the time. And it's really hard to pick that out and to understand it and to, you know, even see it in ourselves. So it's really complicated. Um, And we probably need... uh, someone to talk to about it, you know? Yes. I think there's so much to unpack and learn from in the history of mm-hmm. how infectious disease plays into racism and xenophobia and what, if anything, can be done about that. Let's call a sociologist at Johns Hopkins who studies this exact topic. Hey, Dr. White. Hi, Professor. Hi. Hi, welcome. Hi, how you doing? Oh, it's okay. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Hanging in there. Could you just uh, introduce yourself and say what your title is and what you do? Sure. My name is Alexander White, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology and the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and School of Medicine. I'm just curious, could you say a little bit about how you got into that line of research? Yeah, it was... Really, in studying uh, during my master's, I became very interested in the ways in which epidemic moments seem to 
key off of or become more severe as a result of existing social, uh, economic, and political inequalities. And I found this most clearly when I was uh, conducting research on HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis co-infection in South Africa. And I was really struck by the ways in which histories of apartheid and ongoing uh, racial inequities would shape who got sick, who got better, and, and ultimately why. Um, and this was like a very unoriginal thing, but it was really exciting for, for me to discover as a master's student. And I wanted to pursue that in a PhD. And I became very interested in looking at uh, international epidemic responses and the ways in which economic ideologies, political ideologies, uh, histories and legacies of colonialism and racism uh, shape international epidemic response. So wait, you were you were a student and you were just like, there was a group of people in South Africa who, did you say a co-infection? So both HIV and TB, is that that's, right? That's right, that's right. Oh, yeah. wow. I was actually exploring an, an earlier case uh, in the early days of my PhD research of you know, racially segregated responses to an epidemic of plague, bubonic plague, in Cape Town in, in 1901. And this was, I was doing this research at the same time that I was also seeing, um, you know, we were living through the West African um, Ebola epidemic, and we were seeing highly policed, uh, militarized quarantining of poorer neighborhoods in Monrovia with violence oh. ensuing. And I was like, well, there's something, there must be something that's that's connecting these two phenomena in some way. And as I continued my research, I started to see that, you know, the ways in which we as a, as a globe have responded to the threat of um, infectious disease spread, the threat of epidemics and pandemics is to, you know, very much in, in, in so many ways, double down on the rooted and continuing social imbalances as a way of not only ascribing difference to populations, but also as a way of, of um, providing differential care or, or yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and we see the ways in which this has very uh, disparate outcomes in yeah. um, mm-hmm. who lives and who dies from, from epidemic disease. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a wonderful quote by Roderick McGrew from his study on cholera that says, epidemics do not create abnormal situations, but rather sharpen existing behavior patterns which betray deeply rooted and continuing social imbalances. And what I was seeing was an example of what uh, sociologists would call the social determinants of health somewhat, and the ways in which we could see, for instance, um, especially in the legacies of apartheid, the ways in which racial segregation, unequal access to housing, resources, uh, political violence, really shape uh, how people live and and unfortunately Mm -hmm also the, the diseases they get and ultimately how they die. And as we've seen, you know, in the United States, uh, especially over the last year, you know, racism in a variety of, of different ways, whether it's political violence or whether it's, you know, the, the effects of structural racism leaving you vulnerable to contagion and infectious disease, it quite literally kills. I feel like there's an interesting tension there. Maybe you can help me with it. That, um, you know, you mentioned these social determinants of health, you know, if you're in a place where you high stress, can't sleep, can't eat well, don't have space. Um, you're probably, you know, going to be in a worse place in this pandemic than otherwise. And so there's been a, an important need to say, like, look, this pandemic is not affecting people equally. How do you highlight that disparity without contributing to any notions about that this is a disease that is associated with certain populations. Yeah, that's that's a that's a wonderful question. 
Yeah, I think I think there are really um, two threads that we can draw on from this. Um, one is was is a historically grounded one, and the other is kind of more contemporary and rooted in in social theory. And and I'll I'll go with the the first, which which is since the the fourteenth century and and perhaps even earlier, the arrival of an epidemic has been grounds for ascribing difference in, in, in different ways and assigning blame to certain mm -hmm. populations, um, generally marginalized populations for causing the, the spread of the disease. And we can look to, you know, for instance, massacres of Jews in, in Europe and especially the Strasbourg massacre of 1349, when the Jewish population of the city was blamed for um, the spread of plague and, and they were ultimately um, massacred. I didn't know about that massacre. And on that, that was because already there was some deep-rooted hatred of Jewish people, right? That the plague was used as an excuse. That's 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 exactly right. Um, and also, you, right. Know, you have to remember that the understanding of disease um, in the 14th century was very different from what we have now. There wasn't an understanding of contagion or germ theory, um, but rather, you know, there was still this understanding that you know this this um, pestilence had arrived and. Um, we're going to blame, you know, these particular populations for wow. for that spread. Um, yeah. But really, I think in the 19th century, and especially the late 19th century, you see similar actions at work, just under uh, new and different understandings of disease. You know, with the acceptance of germ theory and an understanding of the ways in which diseases are capable of traveling, disease becomes really a basis for justifying already latent exclusions, whether they're internal to a nation or a city or, you know, in terms of immigration and global travel. Mm -hmm. So disease becomes a way in many ways of, of further ascribing difference and otherness in a way that is both biological, cultural, and enduring. So the turn of the 19th century was this moment for a disease bias. And you mentioned African examples of bias. So what are some cases that we saw in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think there, there are several um, very disturbing historical cases that I think resonate, uh, especially today, as we see you know, so much uh, anti-Asian discrimination and, and, and mm -hmm. violence and racism. Um, you know, the, there were two notable events of bubonic plague and epidemics of bubonic plague occurring on uh, U.S. soil. One was in um, Honolulu, which was at the time part of the American colony of Hawaii. Uh, you know, there was great concern in actually in that case of Hawaii being seen fundamentally as as an Asiatic colony or and Honolulu as an Asiatic city because of this uh, stigma around the spread of infectious disease coming from the Asian continent. And what resulted was an incredibly violent, racist and xenophobic quarantine of the city's Chinatown, whereby uh, Chinese homes, businesses were segregated away from the rest of um, the city. People were unable to, to travel in and out. But at the same time, the uh, region around this Chinatown and even within was gerrymandered such that um, American-owned and white-owned businesses and white-owned homes, you could travel without encumbrance. But what ended up happening was that you know, the um, public health authority of the city would ultimately uh, attempt to burn down and sanitize plague infected homes and ultimately these these fires got out of control and and engulfed oh, much of the uh, much of the Chinatown in flames obviously um, you know leaving many homeless without employment without a job without a place of work on top of the plague in, indeed indeed and and we saw similar uh, racially segregated quarantines 
occur in uh, San Francisco and also in San Francisco's Chinatown from from 1900 to, to 1904 as they were battling the plague. And those particular quarantines also played out in, in rather similar and oppressive ways. I never knew about those. Did you know about them, Jim? No. I read one of your pieces, Professor, back in April of last year. Mm. Um, you wrote, as we witness spates of xenophobic violence, xenophobia and other anti-Asian sentiment, it's important for us to notice whose perspective dominates responses to epidemics. So I wonder what have you been thinking about, you know, as you've seen this anti-Asian harassment and this violence escalating? Yeah, I've been I've been both incredibly saddened by this upset and and also frustrated this this history of anti-asian racism runs very much through histories of of epidemics histories of immigration colonialism uh, that, that the united states often doesn't discuss what this ignores is the long history of structurally racist action against asian populations broadly and this goes back to the latter half of the 19th century you know reaching a sort of apex with two major federal acts that would control immigration from Asia to, to the United States. And the first was, was the Page Act of 1875, which mm -hmm. banned the immigration of Chinese women, which, you know, was justified on the basis that, that Chinese women were perceived to be immoral or guilty of sexual misdeeds. And this conflation of um, sexual and moral perversity was linked fundamentally with a medical justification that somehow the, the venereal diseases that Chinese women might bring and spread as, as sex workers were somehow more virulent than those brought by either other European migrants or that existed in the United States. So there was this grim and horrific conflation of gender, sexuality, race, and the foreignness and concern for the diseases that were more threatening because they were fundamentally arriving. Um, wow. from Asia. It's so incredible that like Chinese men who are working were not allowed to bring their wives and how, you know, we saw an attack specifically on Asian women who were working in massage parlors, like over a hundred years later. You know, the, the other major coercive, racist and, and anti-Chinese act that emerges in the late uh, 19th century is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned the immigration of Chinese men as well, so doubling down on, on the Page Act. And this was, you know, once again informed or justified by beliefs of um, the threat of contagion arising and coming from, from Asia and somehow poisoning the moral and epidemiological space of the United States. And it's really important to note that the, you know, these, these acts were not, um, not solely effective against Chinese or, or broadly Asian populations. But, you know, the sheer fact that these acts were passed really allowed for the slews of um, racist and xenophobic immigration acts that we, that we saw in the 20th mm -hmm. century and 21st century against um, South American and Central American populations, uh, even former President Trump's Muslim ban is rooted in this legacy that really emerges out of a very specific racially targeted form of exclusion um, in the Chinese Exclusion Act. And this is something that Erica Lee and, and many others have written about in great detail. And I think it's really important to keep in mind, especially when we attempt to understand 
the complexities of the violences that we've seen over the last two weeks, especially, and the violences we've seen really broadly across 2020. Yeah. What's, what's so fascinating about this, I think this is also such a troubling aspect of the ways in which, especially the United States has responded to COVID-19. Um, and actually, I, I would include the, the, the United Kingdom in this response as well, is that for the 19th century and 20th century, so much of Western beliefs of fundamental superiority of civilization, justifications for colonialism, emerged out of this mythology of the West being the most sanitary, the most hygienic space, and being the most uh, hygienic civilization on the planet. And we can think about, you know, for instance, Richard Kipling's infamous poem, The White Man's Burden, uh, which was written about American actions, colonial actions in the Philippines, where, you know, he writes, take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace, fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease, right? It was very much this belief that Western civilization, explicitly, um, in, in our case, American civilization, was the most hygienic, the most sanitary, and that the rest of the world was responsible for the diseases that could pollute that civilization. And we see that same rhetoric coming up today, but also, you know, we also see that myth falling apart as we recognize that, you know, the U.S. COVID-19 response yeah. you know, really up to uh, the vaccination delivery has been one of the worst, one of the most unequal um, and really one of the one of the most deadly in the world. Uh, I have a particular interest in the history of hygiene. That myth that you talk about of sort of the Western world being uniquely hygienic, it was actually the inverse of that, if I'm uh, not mistaken, that there were the Christian countries were late to and sometimes actively discouraged things like baths because they were they were lewd and you had to be naked. And that, uh, you know, when Marco Polo traveled, that he was taken by how many uh, by hygiene standards uh, elsewhere that were much higher than in Europe. And um, and Europe certainly had its share of <laughs> plagues and um, infectious disease. So that was that was always a baseless idea entirely, right? Absolutely, and it's and it's idea that really emerges in the zenith of nineteenth-century European colonization of of the rest of the world. This is something that I, I touch upon in my in my own work, whereas you know we look at the history of international infectious disease control. And how that emerges really in the 19th century out of what were called the International Sanitary Conferences, which were uh, a set of conferences that began in 1852 and really continued into the 20th century that focused on creating the first international infectious disease controls for regulating the spread of, of infectious disease amongst people. But the focus of these controls were not you know, health for all or some sort of humanitarian principle. It was rather, you know, how do we allow for the maximum speed and pace of trade and traffic with also the maximum control of infectious disease. So it's really about, you know, minimizing the effect on trade and traffic while also controlling infectious disease. And unsurprisingly, especially as these conferences were driven by uh, European imperial powers, the particular concern over disease traveling from colonial sites, especially in Africa, the Indian Ocean, and then ultimately also in South and Southeast Asia, the focus became on how to maintain, you know, especially lucrative um, sea lanes and, and, and shipping from um, India, for instance, for Britain. How do you maintain this without 
spreading diseases that were becoming very dangerous in the eyes of Europe, like cholera, plague, and, and yellow fever. Hmm. So this myth emerges, and it's a, it's a myth-making process that I think is actually central to Europe and the West coming to envision itself as an entity apart from the rest of the world. And I call this, uh, in, in my work, epidemic orientalism. We see the ways in which the need to maintain trade, colonial and resource exploitation becomes bound up with controlling particular bodies and people who were seen to be in opposition to a sanitary global trade regime. And this is where you get a lot of the racist and xenophobic uh, ideologies we've talked about already and ideas that, that we see still uh, maintaining in the present when you know we associate diseases with certain parts of the world or start you know essentially slurring uh, the names for an epidemic like like COVID-19 in a variety of ways that um, ascribe blame to certain countries or certain areas. Right, right. I mean, that, that sort of draws out this interesting distinction where there's talk about um, immigrants. There's a lot of scapegoating and blaming of immigrants during these heightened times of infectious disease. Uh, spread, but the actual issue is just travel, right? You don't, if there is an outbreak in a particular place you need to contain, you can ban travel um, to and from that area. Sometimes that's a legitimate and necessary public health measure, but why would you ever specifically say that it has something to do with immigration and yet people can travel to these places? Framing of threat through disease allows for the pathologization of peoples of cultural practices as somehow distinct and different from one's own. So it's a way of creating difference. And I think that, you know, the if an epidemic is occurring in a certain region, there are certainly justifications for containing that, that epidemic, controlling it, mitigating its spread. I think when you start applying differential systems of control, hmm. for instance, when, you know, in the 19th century, where the diseases that were spreading from from Europe were not um, regulated or controlled in, for instance, these international sanitary conventions and emerge out of the conferences that I mentioned, and just essentially allow diseases to spread from Europe to the rest of the world, but police diseases traveling from elsewhere, uh, namely colonial sites, to, to European metropoles, you start to create a fundamentally differential system of travel regulations that are rooted in disparities and difference and, and in systems of oppression. So, you know, if these regulations are meted out equally to everyone and say, you know, well, if you're in a certain area that presents a particular epidemic threat, then, you know, they're only under, under certain conditions can you travel, then you start to equalize how these regulations are felt. But if you tweak them in ways that reflect xenophobic or racist or jingoistic anxieties, then obviously you're going to create a multi-tiered system that is inherently um disenfranchising and oppressive. Yeah. So when we connect the idea of a place or group of people to a pathogen, that's that's something that's gone on throughout history as well. Uh, in 1919, people referred to the Spanish flu, despite that it seems to have originated in the US. Uh, Donald Trump used the phrase China virus a long time into the pandemic when that was not at all an appropriate term. Now we are saying things like uh, UK variant or variant that originated in the UK or South Africa or Brazil. Is there a more sophisticated way of nomenclature that 
uh, would avoid just any sort of inappropriate conflation of a certain group of people or, or, or a place with a pathogen? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> we we could go with the the you know the the scientific variant names, which I believe you know the 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 UK variant is known as B one one seven. That's it true. Rather we, hard we do to, have those. <laughs> it becomes a little difficult. <laughs> I think that's hard in the media, especially in popular media, especially with now there's like five variants of <laughs> concern here in the US, Absolutely. and they all sound they all jumble up and sound the same. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I would say that you know, I think I think that there's a there's a slightly more philosophical question related to this, which is you know, obviously, epidemics may begin in a certain place, but to what extent do do origins actually matter? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially once you know we've seen the epicenter of of this pandemic move from uh, you know China to to Italy to and then to kind of take up home for a very long time. Uh, in in the United States, how do we equate geography and threat when you know epidemic epicenters do tend to tend to move and shift? And this is something that the WHO you know has challenged, which is the naming of diseases for their their point of origin. Yeah, several diseases have been renamed to kind of reduce that stigma. And one of the reasons you know COVID nineteen is COVID nineteen, and SARS CoV two is you know it's completely devoid of of any geographic signifiers. The one disease that I think really sticks in the minds of people today is still, you know, Ebola virus disease, which is named after the Ebola river. So what, what we're seeing, and I think and I think the variants are bringing up this conversation again, is, you know, while it's important to understand and control a disease within a specific geography, the conflation of a place as somehow the cause of the emergence or spread of a disease is where we run into uh, very, very real challenges where culturally specific, racially specific, nationally specific uh, stereotypes and anxieties start to emerge. And that's really what we fundamentally need to combat against because it leads to very, very bad um, public health policy. And it also leads obviously to very significant resentments which simmer over and lead to oppression in so many different ways. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think our listeners certainly are not going around spouting overtly bigoted things. And, you know, mm. it's it's not that level of racism that is most people's issue. It's sort of these subtler ways that we internalize and probably could do better, like from the very beginning, thinking about how we're naming new variants. What becomes so dangerous is the ways in which, you know, assigning or ascribing blame to a certain geography or a certain region or a certain people becomes a way of assigning innate difference and that difference becomes Mm -hmm. a a way that we can dehumanize others to make or render their lives less than equal or even uh, disposable. And I think this is where you see a rather disturbing and clear through line from racism and snarky or slur statements around, you know, for instance, the, the China flu or China virus or what have you, and then ultimately to explicit acts of, of violence and murder against, for instance, you know, Chinese and Asian populations. And, and yeah. that's where we really mm-hmm. see the ways in which this connects so powerfully, so vividly and so disturbingly. Yeah. Can I just say one quick thing? Mm-hmm. So talking about Ebola and how the scientists were like, well, we shouldn't name it after like the little village that it came from because that could lead to discrimination. Like, let's just call it a river Mm because like a river covers a lot of ground and everything. But like normally don't scientists, 
if they discover something, they name it after themselves. That that does tend to happen. <laughs> but like, if it's like a cool new type of bee or like a star or something, they're like, that is called the Higgins star. <laughs> But then when it's a terrible disease, they're like, oh, I'm going to call mm, that the... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what what, what scientists often... Uh, I mean, I think the, you know, um, epidemic and, and, and uh, epidemiological disease scientists have uh, have healthy egos like so many of us in, in the field of academia and so many of us do in, in general life. You know, what you, what you often see is, is the ways in which um, their names are snuck into the scientific names of diseases. Mm. So for instance... Um, you know, it's actually a, a, a long story of the kind of disputed discovery of the bacteria that causes plague, the plague bacillus, between two scientists, uh, Kitasato and, and, and Yersin, who are working in the lab mm-hmm. together. Um, Kitasato becomes kind of um, ignored to some extent in the history of the discovery of the causative agent of plague. But um, Yersin gets his name in, 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 the, in the scientific name. It's, a, it's Yersinia pestis. Oh. It's the scientific name for bubonic plague. Um, so you know, scientists. You can sneak weird. in. You can sneak <laughs> so in your name in, in all sorts of places. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to know who this Doctor Pestis is. Getting <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's um. Yeah, if you check if you check the footnotes, you can kind of find okay. find the evidence of the scientific ego. You know, I'll take I, I that's annoying, but I'll take it over uh, some sort of uh, racist nomenclature. I think mm-hmm. Abs- yeah. absolutely. I mean, um, give them their ego. Yeah, I'd, I'd hate to. I'd hate to have someone name a disease after me, and then you know everyone says they've got the you know X flu. Um, obviously, with my with my last name, you know, the, the white flu has its own racial connotation outside of, my, outside of my name. But um, <laughs> that would be a sort of yeah <laughs> the white flu the professor white yeah, yeah there, there we go yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um this leads us into a discussion that is getting more intense about the idea of vaccine passports that seems like a way that you know we'd be pretty explicitly labeling who can do what who is sort of clean or unclean who can who's a threat and who's not. Um, how are you thinking about that, given that you've worked on, on vaccine equity issues and, and how, if and how the U.S. might consider anything like a vaccine passport? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, inequity, the global inequity in, in vaccine delivery um, is, is once again, you know, I think incredibly disappointing, very dangerous, and ultim- a very bad he- public health policy, but also sadly an all too common refrain in, in the history of global health, which is, you know, we're, especially after the year that we've seen and, 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 and the year in which um, European and, and American governments have really handled the public health response to COVID so poorly, we're going to reach a moment where the narrative will switch. And I think it is switching at, at the moment where you know the technological intervention of vaccines will herald once again the perpetuation of this myth of Western uh, superiority in the face of epidemics, where you know we're more likely in the United States, in the UK, in other parts of Europe to reach some form of actual 
uh, herd immunity earlier as a result of these vaccines, which will allow for the travel and movement of Western populations around the world while leaving much of the rest of the world, you know, having to negotiate and bargain for um, for these drugs. And, you know, this reflects a disturbing continued theme of pathologizing non-Western populations, controlling their mm-hmm. movement while allowing um, Western populations to freely travel about the world. And, and it's, yeah. it's disturbing. It's, it's very disappointing and, and, and sadly all too familiar. So I, you know, I implore uh, you and I implore your listeners to, you know, when we think back and when we tra- start to, um, you know, historicize uh, 2020 and the, and the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we, we remember the ways in which we really failed and, and the, the deaths and the suffering that was wrought from this disease because of poor and inequitable public health policy. And we put that in conversation with the inevitable technological triumphalism that's going to emerge from, from you know, hopefully the efficacy of these vaccines and in, in at least controlling uh, the spread of, of COVID-19. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, very helpful and insightful. Thank you for everything. Thanks for the time. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. And your insight. Mm-hmm. Thank, yeah. thank you for, for having me. Take care. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Jim, thanks for all of your thoughtfulness. That was um, a really, a really, really interesting episode. And it's helping me to think about like all of the terrible things that are happening in America. And of course, to send love and solidarity to all our listeners who are affected, Asian and Asian Americans, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And I am going to think more about disease naming and virus strain naming in a way that is neither too boringly technical or is mm-hmm. contributing to this problem. Well, you know what I got? I got Hamblin mania. Yeah, maybe. You know, <laughs> I was thinking... <laughs> uh, there are actually a lot of doctors who named conditions after themselves, uh, you know, like uh, Addison's disease, uh, Parkinsonism. Hmm. Uh, Grave, Graves' like, disease? Graves' disease, yeah. There, there's a weird amount of ego there. So there's that route. Yeah. Or you could use, like, I was imagining some alternative map, like um, naming, like, if we must use places, use, like, the Star Wars galaxy or Middle Earth or something where oh. you could, like, you could name after f- places that don't exist. Yeah. Or also acronyms could be, you know, SARS. Like, that's easy to remember. MERS. I don't know what MERS is. <laughs> yeah, you know for, what? But... Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Oh, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Oh, so, but you see, I didn't know that it was anything to, but that's mm-hmm. a bad example. Maybe it's a good example. But, um, Jim, I'm going to let you go, but I did want to ask you um, if you had anything to say to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe. just today of all days, March twenty fourth. Is it your birthday, Maeve? Yeah. Oh my <laughs> yes. gosh! I didn't even know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why I didn't tell you, so that I could embarrass you on air. Oh, thank you. Um, you're welcome. I'm so sorry. Happy birthday, Maeve. Is that all? You're not going to. I remember on your birthday, we all went to your rooftop. Yeah. Sarah made a gorgeous cake. We sang to you. Yeah. Remember? I suppose. Yeah. And you're welcome to come over. Um, no, no, no. My request is straightforward. You sing happy birthday to me in a style of Marilyn Monroe singing to JFK on his birthday. <laughs> and I... <laughs> uh, so, 
you know, mm -hmm. JFK had Addison's disease. That Don't try and change the subject. Social Distance okay. is produced by Kevin Townsend hey. <laughs> with help from senior producer AC Valdez. We love hearing from listeners. If there's something you'd like us to talk about on an upcoming show, our email is socialdistance at theatlantic.com and our voicemail is 202-642-6487. And finally, as always, if you like this show and want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Happy birthday, Maeve. I'll sing Sorry. to you later and send over like a voice <laughs> text. <laughs> okay, it better be sultry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, if there's one thing I do, it's sultry. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.